felt like it would be helpful, um, at least for me and hopefully for you, as I was thinking about uh, the new year and thinking about personal spiritual goals, thinking about the ways I wanted to grow. I was drawn to this passage and just uh, began to reflect on all the ways that I wanted to see God's life manifest in me more and more. And so we sort of have taken some time to think about what we're calling the new life in the new year. And that's all framed within the context of this paradox that we find in the book of Ephesians, as we find everywhere, about how God has created new life. He's built new life into us. And yet we have a responsibility to work out that new life, to put on that new life, to bring that new life to manifestation in our everyday life. We saw this back in Ephesians 2.10, how God had created good works before the foundation of the world, before the world ever began, before the time ever began, before you and I ever began. God created good works that you and I should walk in them. And not only that, we saw at the beginning, or excuse me, at the, uh, uh, in verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians, we saw that God had created uh, this new person, this new image within inside of us. He says in verse 22 that we are to put off an old self which belongs to a former manner of life, corrupt through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. So we have this new self that God has created, a new creation within us, a spiritual reality where old things have passed away and all things have become new, we have this reality about our new life that has been created, and yet we have the responsibility of working out and putting on and manifesting that new creation in our lives. We have ultimately the responsibility that it talks about in verse 1 of chapter 5 to be imitators of God, to be conformed to His image, to be like Him in everything. And Paul sort of outlines what that looks like in verses 25 through 32, which has been our focus, in a series of contrasts, contrast between an old way of life and this new life, contrast between uh, the corrupt life and, the, and the, the life of truth and the life of freedom that is presented to us beginning in verse 25 with this contrast between falsehood and truth. Falsehood and truth, that we as believers are to put aside anything that would be considered false or, or uh, dishonest or less than true, less than completely true, half-truths, whatever you might call it. We're to put all that aside and speak frankly and honestly and forthrightly and truthfully. We do that, of course, because that's the way God is and that's the way we want to be. Secondly, there was this contrast we saw last time between anger and self-control. He says it in verse 26 and 27 that we're to lay aside uh, or set aside a life of anger and put on a life of self-control, knowing that anger doesn't produce anything worthwhile, knowing it doesn't produce the righteousness of God, knowing, as the Scripture says, it only increases iniquity, and knowing, first of all, that this is not the way God has dealt with us. Believers then... Deal with our emotions and our anger in a godly, constructive, and conciliatory way. And we would add immediately a way. We deal with it before the sun goes down on our anger. Well, today we come to a third and a fourth contrast in the text, uh, beginning in verse 28, where Paul sets before us this contrast between theft and generosity. Theft and generosity. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. So it's pretty clear. It's a prohibition against theft, against, you know, uh, uh, taking things that don't belong to you, which have always been a part of God's law. You know, thou shalt not steal, you shall not covet. So we understand at very clear, very basic level that theft cannot be a part of a righteous life, that it does not reflect God, does not reflect His law, does not reflect righteousness. And in fact, all of society 
uh, or every civilized organization, every civilized uh, country throughout all time has recognized that theft cannot be any part of society if it's going to function. There must be basic protections on property. And so even in Roman society, where Paul was writing in his day, there were very severe penalties for those who would commit blatant theft. In fact, it was part of the Lex Tabularum, the Roman code, that if you caught someone red-handed, if you caught someone in the act of stealing your property, you had the right to kill them. Right on the spot. They came to your land. They were messing with your stuff. You can take their life. But even if you didn't catch them, if they were caught later on and subsequently tried and found to be guilty, if they were a Roman citizen, they were taken out to the public square, flogged in humiliation. And then, worse than that, they were given over as a slave to the person from whom they took the property. So instead of taking their property, you now become their property as the greatest retribution here. And then, of course, if you weren't a Roman citizen, if you were already a slave, the penalty was to be taken out, flogged, and executed, which in Rome would have been throwing you off of a cliff the great Tarpian rock there in the Forum, if you've ever been there, that five, six-story tall rock, they just threw people over as a punishment. So it's pretty severe, I think it's safe to say. In Roman society, if you took something, you're going to pay the price. Consequently, uh, there were not great problems in Rome, at least in the cities. There wasn't uh, a great problem of theft uh, there weren't just there just weren't many of those people around because if you committed it, you weren't around for very long. So Paul probably has in mind not just felony theft as he writes to these people. He probably has much broader than those things. He might have been thinking of people, say like Zacchaeus, who uh, regularly defrauded, who overcharged people, who was in something of like a uh, a, a, a subcontracting role to the Roman government where he would go to people to collect taxes and essentially overstate his cost or overstate his expenses in order to extract more money from people than he was really supposed to or legally supposed to. And the Lord, he, he meets the Lord, you remember there, and, 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 and encounters him and comes to a place of repentance and declares Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. So as an act of his repentance, he acknowledges his, his uh, uh, corrupt ways. He acknowledges that he's defrauded people. He wants to make it right. So Paul might have had in mind this kind of extortion, this kind of overcharging, or he might have had in mind like the other tax collectors who came to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, when he's calling them to repentance and, and telling them to bear fruits and keeping the repentance. And they say, well, what does that look like? What should we do? And he tells them, don't collect any more than you're authorized to collect. Or the soldiers who came, and they're asking him, what do we do? And he says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Or maybe someone like Judas, who John 12 says used to carry the money bag for Christ and the disciples. And it says he was a thief having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. And so all these ways could be really in the scope of what Paul has to say. All the ways that people take what isn't legally theirs. All the ways that people take what isn't rightfully theirs, whether it involves overcharging, overstating your expenses, overstating your hours to your employee, overstating the cost of what it uh, takes you to do something, whether it is petty pilfering, withholding from the government, unstated income, illegal downloads, pirating software, taking songs without paying for them, all of those ways 
where people might take what is legally or what, what legally they do not have a right to take. And you just think about how ubiquitous it is across the world and across our society, how everyone driven by their discontentment is always doing these things. I heard the other day uh, that they were cutting back on... Um, the Internal Revenue Service's staff to audit tax filers. And they were calculating the amount of people that they were going to have to cut back and the amount of dollars it may cost by not discovering the fraud and corruption in the tax system. Five billion, they thought, would probably be lost in revenue just simply because there's not enough people to find all the cheats who are all around us all the time. People do this. People do this. This characterizes the world. But it shouldn't characterize us. It shouldn't characterize us. Why? Because at a very basic level, it is a very poor view of God. It's a view of the world, and it's a view of society, and it's a view of stuff over which God doesn't rule over which God has no control. Or he maybe has control, but you just don't like what he's doing with it. Whenever you are going out there and you're stealing, stealing something, you are, you are saying by your actions that God is either unable or unwilling to give you this, and you're going to take it on your own in spite of him. It is an assault on his rightful place, and just as we talked about with lying is an assault on God's rightful place to establish reality and truth, trying to replace it with your own reality and truth, this is an assault upon the idea that God really cares for you or the idea that He's willing to meet all your needs. And so theft, even petty theft, even all these little ways, says more really about your view of God than it does about anything else. John Calvin states it this way in his Institutes. He says, We must consider that what each individual possesses has not fallen to him by chance, but by the distribution of the sovereign Lord of all, that no one can pervert his means to bad purposes without committing a fraud on a divine dispensation. So each time you engage in something like this, what you are engaging is, engaging in is an assault on God's sovereign distribution in your life. So this prohibition against stealing, both here and in Paul's words, and even by common consent of, of civilized uh, cities and nations through the ages, is all-encompassing and and really is as all-encompassing as your view of God. It will reach into every corner of your life to the extent that your faith in God reaches into the corner of that life. It will extend from big things to small things to the extent that you believe that God rules over big things and small things. And God's intention is that we would never be known in any category as those who take what is not lawfully ours. Instead, what does he say here in verse 28? This is the contrast that we ought to labor doing honest work with our own hands. This is the alternative way. We've seen this over and over again in the passages here. This, uh, this transformation always involves a putting off and a putting on. It always involves, first of all, the putting off with the renewing of our mind and the putting on of what is true and right and honorable. And this is just another in those paradigms. This is just demonstrating to us what repentance looks like whenever it comes into our life. The putting off of the old life, the putting on of the new, the putting off of what imitates the world, the putting on of what imitates God. And it involves putting on this, this likeness of God made after the truth. And so what is God like? Well, at a fundamental level, God is not a taker. God is not a thief. God is what? He is a giver. God is generous. 
And so this is what Paul's calling us to. This is his admonition. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. And we're to be imitators of him. You remember, by the way, long before Paul ever wrote this, he lived this in the face of the Ephesian church. He's writing here in Ephesians 4, but long before he ever wrote this letter, if you have your Bibles, flip back over to Acts 20. And you may remember that Paul called the leadership of the Ephesian church, the elders together in Acts 20, to give them sort of a final appeal. He knew he wouldn't see them for many years again, if, if ever. And so he gives them this extensive appeal towards uh, leadership and shepherding and godliness. It grow, stretches all the way back to Acts 20, verse 18. But I want to draw your attention to verse 34. Near the end, as Paul's rounding out this admonition, he says to them, you yourselves know, Acts 20, 34, you know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, this is what I did when I was among you. I worked with my own hands. I labored. I made my own way, we might say, or I carried my own water, whatever you might put into the vernacular of today. This is what I demonstrated. This is now what Paul is writing. This is God's will. This is what repentance looks like. And you see it there. You see it not only in Paul's life. You see it not only here in Ephesians 4, but over and over again in Scripture. You hear these admonitions towards work, towards labor, towards honest and good effort with your hands. He says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who walks in idleness. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the issue here, he says, is an issue of the heart. They have to be willing. If they're willing to work, that's great. If they're not willing to work, he says, that you keep away from them. If they're not willing to work, he says, they're not to eat. If they're not willing to work, he says, they ought to face the consequences of that. I mean, by modern standards, that would be considered harsh, unloving even. He says in 1 Thessalonians, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you might walk properly towards outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is godliness. This is what repentance looks like. First Timothy chapter 5. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. So we might say that in the biblical framework, that the, the scripture... And that God redefines work. See, the world, world will tell you the work is to be looked at as drudgery. It's to be looked at as slavery of some sort. It's to be looked at as something that you sort of try to get out of. It's to be something that you avoid. They come up with all these schemes where they're going to you know, sell you some package. And other people are going to work for you. And you're going to sit back and not do anything. And get all this income or some get rich quick scheme or whatever. The world has all of these ways and all these methods. And all these uh, 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 pursuits to get out of work. Some people want to just take advantage of a, a system within the government. Some people want to take advantage of others. Some people just want to live their lives in dependency. Whatever it might be. 
all of them show a fundamental deficiency in their view of work. And the Bible would tell you that work isn't bad. Work is good. In fact, work is ordained by God and commanded by God. He commands over and over and over again to go out and do honest work. In fact, this is uh, what he says here, or some translations have, do what is good or perform with your hands what is good. It's all the same. God desires us to do honest work, which I think without expanding on it too much, really encompasses a whole theology of work, a whole concept which ought to transform your life and transform the way that you view your work from something that is a necessary evil to something that no matter what you do, should be a calling in your life. So that whatever you do, you're going out there and you are providing some honest and good and profitable service, not profitable necessarily to you, but beneficial to the people who are around you. You're either making something that makes people's life easier. You're repairing something in order to help them get on their way. You're providing some sort of service. You're uh, giving some sort of a a, a, a pathway or whatever it might be, whatever you do for a living ought to be uh, contributing positively and honestly and productively to the people who are around you. And all of this is ordained by God. And all of this is what God wants you to do. And all of this is uh, involved with repentance. This is why you always see the Bible eschewing these sort of get-rich-quick schemes. It says, for example, Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Or he says in Proverbs 28, 19, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. See, this, this just exalts work. It exalts the labor or the, or the task or the responsibilities that you have. It exalts it and puts it in the, within the framework of the way that you go out there and glorify God by doing what is honest and doing what is good. So this is part of repentance. God's plan for you and for me is to put in an honest day's work again and again and not to be filled with worthless pursuits. And the concept is that you glorify God by doing this, doing it faithfully, doing it with integrity, doing it for the good of all the people who are around you. It serves others, it provides for you, and it brings blessing. But that's not the only thing. It has a higher purpose along with that, not just your personal income. Not just the sustaining of you and not just the pride that you might take in your work. All those things are certainly good in themselves, but God ordained this as well, Paul says here, so that you might have something to share. Work with your own hands, doing what is good, so that you might have something to share with those in need. See, because we understand that while God has ordained work, And while it is good that we all do that to support ourselves, we understand that in God's providence and in God's economy, that in many situations, people won't. They won't be able to work. They won't be able to provide for themselves. They won't be able to be completely independent. They will be, in some cases, struggling with some handicap. They'll be struggling... Sometimes in some situation, circumstance, they might lose their job. They might be more than willing to work, but just simply can't find work. They might be in a situation where their primary breadwinner has been lost and, and they find themselves as a widow and, and, and an orphan. They might be in a situation where they're in some sort of oppressive environment, where they have an employer who, who, is, who is abusing or taking advantage of them who isn't 
uh, paying them fairly in the situation that they're in. And so although they're laboring and working hard with their hands, they're still struggling to make ends meet. We understand that in the course of life, God has ordained this, but at the same time, He's given us the privilege to be able to go to work and have excess beyond what we personally need so that we can step into these situations where an honest and an upright brother or sister might be trying to make their way but can't quite make it, and we have the opportunity to serve. And this is God's purpose, among other things, for what you do. All over Scripture you find this. Paul says of the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that they are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be eager or ready to share. They are to be queued up and ready with what they have. Or here we understand it's not just the it's not excuse me not just the rich. Paul's saying we're all to be engaged in this. Every one of us who have work are supposed to work in order that we might have something to share. We all want to be rich in good deeds. We all want to be generous. We all want to be ready and eager for sharing. Basel, a church father from the 4th century, captures this principle. He asks this, he says, quote, Whence then did you have your possessions? If you say by chance, you are godless, because you do not acknowledge the Creator nor give thanks to the giver. If you admit they are from God, tell us, why have you received them? End quote. We don't want to ask that question. We're okay for someone to ask, where did it come from? We might answer that correctly. But when they begin to ask, why? Why has God given you what you have? Because our answer might very well be defined by our lives. He's given it to me so I can indulge my desires, so that I can pursue a life of personal luxury and self-indulgence. He's given me uh, all the things that I have so that I can expend it on myself and take glory in myself. The ugliness that we're forced to face exposes the selfishness of our hearts. But if you want to know the real answer to the question, it's stated explicitly. If you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 will tell you exactly why God gives you what you have. Even if it comes by the work and labor of your hands. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is our view of God. We believe that God rules over all things. We believe God is able to make all kinds of things abound to us. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times... You may abound in every good work. So if this is your view of God, if you believe that God is overall, then what you believe is that God has given to you what you have so that you can abound in good works. Or as he goes on to say, as it's written, he distributes freely. He gives, he's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, the reason God gives you seed is so that you can distribute it. God doesn't give you seeds so that you can hoard it. God doesn't give you things so that you can hoard unrighteousness. God doesn't give you things so that you can go to your grave with a treasury of unrighteousness in the bank. He gives you things so that you can sow it, so that you can increase your righteous deeds, so that you can have a harvest of righteousness. That is why he gives them, he says. And this is exactly what Basel's getting at. This is what Zacchaeus understood when he encountered the Lord. He realized who the Lord was. He realized himself and his own sin, and he was brought to the point of repentance. And along with 
declaring that he would restore fourfold whatever he had defrauded others from. Beyond that, he says, I'll give half of what I own to help the poor. It's a man that didn't believe in tithing. You'll, you'll get that, just 50%, half of what I own. This is, a, this is a generous heart. This is a repentant heart. This is a man who understood what I have was given to me for a purpose. What I have was given to me to sow righteousness. So this is what Paul says is going to happen to us when we repent. We're not going to be takers. We're not going to be stealers. We're not going to be thieves. We're going to be givers. We're going to work. We're going to see purpose in our work. And we're going to distribute to the purposes of God, to the needs of others, to the advance of His gospel, and to a harvest of righteousness. Well, Paul adds for us here one more contrast that we want to highlight in this passage. Not only this contrast between theft and generosity, but a contrast between corrupt speech and constructive language. Corrupt language and constructive language. He says here in verse 29, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. I mean, this too is serious business, along with everything else in the passage. The tongue and our speech and the way that we communicate is serious business. And over and over and over again, the Bible tries to communicate that with these very, very strong images. I mean, in one place it says, Proverbs 18, 21 says, The power of life and death are in the tongue. It says in Proverbs 9, uh, 11, 9, that by the words of your mouth you destroy your neighbor. Or just a few verses later, it says, In the power of the tongue the wicked overthrow a whole city. And so the Bible adds weight to your speech by these, by these kinds of images. In one place it says in, in Proverbs 12 that, w- that the speaking of the tongue is like the thrusting of a sword, which in that day was the most deadly weapon that you could wield personally. We might as well say today it's like carrying around a semi-automatic weapon. That's what's in your mouth. That's what you have the power to do. It's so heavy, so weighty that the Lord even declares that on the final day of judgment, He says, on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. Every throwaway word, every insignificant word, every careless word, every word. And by extension, Not just those throwaway ones, but all the weighty ones, all the important ones. Everything you say, there'll be an account. All this is why the godly have always desired to weigh heavily their speech. To think carefully about what they say. That's why the psalmist prays in Psalm 141, Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Put a door across my lips. Lord, somehow just just shut it up for me. Don't let it flow so freely. Help me in that. Or the proverb 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So the godly have always understood and have always pursued an economy of words. Less and less and less because they understand that just by opening their mouth, there's such potential to do harm and to do damage and to hurt someone. Or you look over at James chapter 3. This is probably the, uh, the, the central passage in all of Scripture that def- defines the power of of the tongue. It says, for example, in James 3, 5, the tongue is a small member 
And yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Set on fire, setting on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You come in here on Sunday morning, you sing songs of praise to God, you turn around and before evening sets, you've cursed someone. You've degraded someone. You've belittled someone. And you see the images here of just the power of the tongue. I mean, he says here, look, we've tamed all these animals. All over the world, mankind has done. A little, little spark of fire will burn up a whole forest. Or he says earlier, you know, a big ship is turned by such a small little rudder. And we realize in the, in the images that he's given how powerful our tongue is and how in some situations just a word has changed the whole course of someone's life. You can just imagine if he's in modern day society. The images he might draw on about how we're able to harness the power of these little tiny atoms and and take the power of splitting one of these atoms and turn it into the ability to turn on lights in an entire city or on the other hand maybe take it and destroy hundreds of thousands of lives in a city. How we can harness power to put a person on another planet or on the moon and we can do all these things and yet Despite all of our ability to do all these things, we still cannot tame the tongue. It is a powerful, powerful thing. Or you can understand then, as you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, the power Paul must be talking about when he's talking about this new creation in our life. And what he's saying is that the gospel will transform your tongue. That you will put off corrupt communication out of your mouth. That you will curtail this rotten, that's what the word corrupt literally means. It's, it's a word that's used in some cases for rotting fruit or even in one situation for rotting fish. And I don't know if you've ever been around rotting fish. It's not pleasant. And this is what he says this kind of speech is like. It is putrid, it is foul, it is unwholesome, it is unhealthy. The kind of language that is constantly harsh and brash and contemptuous. The kind of language which is foul and offensive. The kind of language which is vulgar and distasteful. And what he's saying is all of that kind of rotten language, if you're a believer, all of that language is put out of your mouth. You don't let it. It's not, it doesn't come out of your mouth anymore. That language which mimics the world, that language which is learned from the world's ways and the world's media and the world's entertainment and the world's uh, conversation. It may imitate the world around you, but it has no likeness to God. So you want to set a guard over your mouth, a door across your lips. You want your life to be transformed and you want it to be transformed beginning with your speech. And you want it to become what Paul says here, good for building up. Good for the occasion so that it can give grace to those who hear. This is the putting on part. You want to put off the corrupt. You want to put on this part. 
How are you going to do that? I mean, if this is such an unwieldy power, if the tongue is so powerful, that it's so difficult to tame, how are you going to lay aside all this harsh and, and uh, demeaning and impatient and short and hurtful language? How are you going to do that? Well, let me give you four very practical ways. Four very practical ways that you're going to have this transformation take place. First of all, address the cause. Address the cause of the speech. And contrary to what you might hear, contrary to what you might be told, it isn't the people around you. You didn't have to say that because someone said something to you. You didn't have to say that because of some person. You didn't have to say that because of the environment you're in. You didn't have to say that because of the stress. You didn't have to vent or get it off your chest or any of those things. No, that's not the source of where your speech comes from. The source is told to us by Christ in Matthew chapter 12. He says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. It's out of your heart. In fact, he says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. So if you're going to really have any hope of having this transformation in your speech, then one of the first things you're going to have to do is recognize where the speech comes from, and you're going to have to address that. You're going to have to address your heart. You're going to have to begin to build a good treasure in your heart. You're going to have to put in the kind of things that are going to produce the right kind of fruits. You're going to have to do what Paul says in the Philippian uh, epistle. You're going to have to think about things that are true. You're going to have to think about things that are honorable. You're going to have to think about what is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever things are worthy of praise. Think about these things. You can't spend your time uh, dreaming uh, or thinking on things that are not right. You can't spend your time thinking about exaggerations. You can't spend your time thinking about schemes. You can't spend your time thinking about what is impure, what is unlovely, what is non, not commendable. You can't spend your time thinking about things that you wouldn't do in public, but you would indulge in private. Address what is going on in your heart. And then, of course, as we'll see in a moment, uh, think about the gospel. I mean, your, your tongue might be able to articulate all kinds of doctrines and all kinds of theology. And you might tell people about all the Bible studies you've been in and all the things you participated in. You might be a teacher. You might be a, a person that people look to for answers. And yet, whenever you are in common conversation, if your lips are not filled with edifying speech, if you're filled with harshness, if you're filled with judgmentalism, if you're filled with, with a corrupt speech, if you're filled with putrid speech, then that tells what's really in your heart. That is a better gauge of your spiritual maturity than all the doctrines in the world that you might be able to articulate. Secondly, not only do you need to address the, the source, but you need, to, you need to be correct. We don't want to spend a lot of time here because we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but just simply understand that when you speak, one of the most hurtful things you can do is to be dishonest or to exaggerate or to misrepresent, mislead. All that is just a way of, of isolating people or putting people on the defensive of raising their ire because they hear you doing those things and they get more frustrated. It destroys trust, it destroys relationship, and it certainly doesn't build up the other person. So if you're going to be able to put aside corrupt communication, if you're going to be able to put on uh, constructive communication, you're going to have to commit yourself not to overstating your case, not to to uh, uh, stating things incorrectly when it comes to the other side. Thirdly, you need to learn to be constructive. This is Paul's admonition here in verse 29. You speak only such as is good 
for building up as fits the occasion. It's an interesting phrase, difficult really to translate from Greek into English. And that's why you see so many different translations among the various versions. For example, you have the New King James, what is good for necessary edification or ESV, only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. Probably the closest to it would be the NIV, which has only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. You have the New American Standard, which really paraphrases this thing and adds all kinds of words in italics. If you have your New American Standard, you'd see that. Only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Well, in reality, it There is no specific reference to time or moment or any of that. It literally just says in the Greek, it says, What is good for edification of the need? Speak what is good for the edification of the need. The emphasis is more on the need even than the other person. What is most useful for them? Which obviously implies that you need to know what? Their needs. You need to understand their needs. Which implies that good speaking begins with good listening. Or another way to say that, good speech begins not by opening your mouth, but by shutting it. Good speech begins not by opening your mouth, but by closing it. By taking time to listen, to fully understand the needs. You know, we're too often like the person that takes a shot at a, an iceberg. You know, all you can see is a little tip right there, right? They've got a whole body underneath. And we're like the fool in Proverbs who answers a matter before we know it. And we hear something and we just sort of blurt out something without ever taking the time to engage that person, to hear that person, to understand that person, to know the trials and the difficulties and the weaknesses. And we just spout off something and more times than not, it comes across as superficial or it comes across as harsh or it comes across as as impatient or whatever it might be because we are not serving the needs of the other person. And what Paul says is that godly people, when they speak, they always speak in a way that serves the needs of the person who are on the other side. It's useful. It's edifying. Or the Proverbs says in Proverbs 12, the tongue of the wise brings healing. And so the question is, is that your reputation around your family and in your circles? Are you known as the guy, are you known as the girl who has the healing tongue? That whenever you enter into a conversation, you're the one who mends. Or are you the one who rips apart? This is what Paul's talking about. Discerning the needs of others, listening carefully to where they're coming from. So that you'll know better how to offer godly communication. All this goes hand in hand with the fourth principle that you learn not only the source and you learn not only to be correct and constructive, but you have to be kind. You have to be kind. There's a lot of people that can be truthful and a lot of people who could even share constructive truth, but they do it in such an unkind and ungracious way that their words would never qualify for what Paul's talking about right here. They do it any number of ways that Paul talks about in verse 31. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander put away from you with all malice. In other words, they share things that they uh, aren't being deceitful and might even have some truth to it, but they share it with a bitterness or they share it with an anger, or they share it maliciously, or they share it in a way that's just simply clamorous. It's just simply inciting people, just stirring them up. And Paul says there's no place for that kind of speech in the life of a believer. Certainly, certainly no place for yelling 
and for quarreling and for intentionally hurting other people with malicious comments. No place for belittling. No place for demeaning. But even more than that, he says in verse 32, in contrast to all that, our speech ought to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. You don't want to speak and ever give the impression to people that you have somehow lost touch with the gospel that saved you. He says you want to be kind, you want to be tender-hearted, you want to be forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. You know what he's telling us? He's telling us you spend time around somebody and you listen to the way they talk and you listen to the way they engage and you listen to the way they speak of other people, speak to you. And you can tell whether or not they've lost touch with the fact that they've been forgiven because it'll be reflected in their speech. The way they speak, whether or not it's kind, whether or not it's patient, whether or not it's tender. You're around some people and they're, they got all their doctrine right and they got all their T's crossed and I's dotted and they can you know, articulate all this truth. But they're just not tender. They've no longer been tenderized. By the mercy of the Savior and the grace of Christ. They haven't spent proper amount of time reflecting on how much they've been forgiven. How much grace they need to extend to others. And so everything that comes out of their mouth, while it might be correct and true. It isn't helpful. It isn't serving the needs of other people. It's delivered in such a way. In such a harsh an unsympathetic and unkind way. That no matter what the value of the content is, it isn't received. It's already done its damage. So Paul says, don't let this be you. Let the gospel transform your life so that you are tender-hearted, so that you are kind, so that you are full of constructive and helpful and gracious speech. You do all this, he says in verse 30, because you yourself have been sealed. You don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. That's a word just sealed just simply means guaranteed, assured, pledged. You know, there's a way for you to share even difficult things, but to share them with the affirmation and the assurance of your love and your affection and your loyalty and your commitment to a person. So that no matter what's coming out of your mouth, even if it has to be a correction, You've left no doubt in the mind of that person that you love them and that you're with them. Just like God has assured you. Well, this is godly speech. This is new life. This is what we need to be pursuing as we look at the new year. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful this morning for these reminders. And they come to us with all the weight of your truth and the weight of the reality of our failings. Pressing us on to a pathway of sanctification. Lord, may your word have its cleansing work. May it transform the way we work with our hands and the way we speak with our lips. The way we do everything that we do it in a way that conforms to you. Help us not to mimic the world, but to imitate our God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.